What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's feature is mixed media artist Stephanie Johnson. Stephanie. I learned so much about you preparing for this interview that I didn't know, even though I've known you for some years now. And I am so excited to introduce you to folks who may not know how amazing you are. I want to start, you know, on a personal tip. Tell me about little Stephanie. Where did you grow up? What were your parents like? Well, first of all, thank you really for this opportunity to to be able to talk about my life and my work. I hope I inspire somebody, just other people such as yourself have inspired me. I grew up in the East Bronx in New York. Um, My father was a child psychologist. My mother worked with the American Negro Theater before I was born. So I'm a second generation theater worker. She knew Ruby Dee, uh, Sidney Poitier, you know, and folks like that. And she always talked about how wonderful theater was and how the best people in the world are theater people. I mean, so what else was I going to do, right? What else was I going to do besides work in theater? And then we... uh, We moved over to um, Englewood, New Jersey. And from there, I went to the Jewish Youth Center and took acting lessons. So, you know, my path has been pretty direct. And then I went to Emerson College in Boston and studied theater. And the next to last semester, I took a lighting class as an elective and fell in love with it. And I've been doing it 48 years now, something like 48 years. Well, I have been in the theater for almost 40 years, and I've said this to you before, you are the first and the only Black female lighting designer I have ever come across. Oh, yeah. They have always been white men. So you talked about, you know, how you got involved, but 70, 48 years, so let's let's take a journey back in time. 40 is hard enough for Black folks in the trades now, right, to get in, to make a living, um, I can't only imagine both in terms of race, but also in terms of gender. Oh, yeah. Um, what what it, was it like for you breaking into uh, this business as a lighting designer? Well, it was, it, was, it was pretty hard. I mean, I have a couple of anecdotes to share with you about it. Um, you know, I worked with Robert Townsend on the Five Heartbeats. And that was and I was an electrician. That was the, the only time I've ever worked with an all black crew and with black folks. Um, here in the Bay Area, as you said, you know, it was mainly white men. And I remember once I was working on a uh, on the set of something. This is years ago. And this white grip kept tightening up the C-stand, you know, because he thought it was going to be too hard for me to loosen it up. Um, unfortunately for me, unfortunately for him, I had a tool from the theater trade and used it in the film trade, which gave me leverage. So I could, you know, very easily loosen up the C-stand. But he kept messing with me and trying to make me look bad. And so at one point, I made believe that I was tripping and I punched him right across the jaw with the crescent wrench in my hand. And that was, that was wonderful, a wonderful feeling. And, <laughs> you know, along the way, in addition to having adversarial people, I also had some, some people that helped me, some white guys that were in the union. And so my first job here was working at Zellerbach Auditorium. And I moved here when I was 25, 26. 
I took my little, you know, scroungy resume over to Zellerbach Auditorium, walked in. It was Phil Heron sitting there. Phil Heron was a white guy. He was just one big muscle. I walked in, and the very first thing he said to me was, so you're a black woman. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't even know how to answer this. I was new to Californian culture. Here I was, this guy that's sitting there looking like one big muscle. So you're a black woman. I didn't answer it. He said, you get in here, you do your work. Nobody's going to bother you. You know, so years later, when I was much more sophisticated, I translated that to be his support of me. Not only his support, but protection, meaning if anybody does anything to you, they're going to answer to me. So several years later, he called me into his office. By then, I was no longer terrified of him. Um, I knew he was in my corner. And he said, so you want to be a lighting designer? And I said, yeah, Phil, I, I really want to be. A, I want you out of here. In other words, you can do better than being a stagehand and sweeping the stage. Now, during the course of all that work uh, over at Zellerbach, there was the house crew and there was the union crew. The union crew made about twice as much. And everybody on that crew, except for me, would be allowed to take a union call. And the only way you learn union rules and how to do things is, of course, to get a union call. I never got one. The head of the union, Local 107, promised and promised and promised. Yeah, honey, yeah, honey, I'm going to give you a chance. Never. So that, that's one anecdote about that. Then I have an anecdote about the Paramount. So I went over to the Paramount. I was working on Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame. I was the lighting designer for that huge event over there. So I walk in, there's a, a little guy this time, uh, Thane Morris. I walk in and you know I'm terrified. I'm like in my twenties, you have all these white guys who really don't want me to be there. I mean, they're, one guy was looking past me and asking, where's the lighting designer? And uh, I was very young and very nervous. And finally they figured out I was the lighting designer. So I'm running the crew and I'm very terrified and so Thane calls me into his office and he says, if you don't get on these guys, I'm going to get on you. So I went back to the set and started ordering people around. You know, so I've had mentorship in their way from white men who were in positions of power, who saw what I could do and in their language and in their cadence were able to direct me how to get over. From then on, I kept bringing donuts and coffee every time to the crew. I'd ask them about their children and, you know, so we developed a rapport, but it was, it was, it was pretty scary. It was pretty scary because as a lighting designer or as any kind of technical person, you can get hurt. Something's miswired. You get shocked. Somebody's not holding the ladder. You fall off. And so in the early days, that's why I was never, ever, ever dependent upon union calls. Even though I got my card of ultimately out of local 16, in San Francisco, I never, ever called them for a call because I did not want to be injured. Stephanie, I want to talk a little bit about process, um, your process. How do you go about the business of designing lighting for a production? So basically what you do is, what one does is you meet with the director, you talk with them about their vision. Some directors know a lot about lighting, some know a little about lighting. You ask them what kind of colors, what kind of images, what kind of textures they want you to employ as you're coming up with your design. Now, I can design, I've done designs with 12 lights. I've done designs, particularly in Europe, with 300 lights. But 
the most important thing, I think, is communication between the director, the designer, the crew, everybody. So I start off with those ideas. You know, the simplest thing is when the mouth is moving or the body's moving on stage, it must be seen because if people can't see, they think they can't hear. And then that becomes a problem, particularly in representational plays when people just zone out. On the other hand, you don't want to make it a lighting show if it's not a lighting show or a spectacle. You don't want to take away from the text, from the play, from what's going on on stage. So you have to consider all of that. And basics are time of day. As it gets darker on stage, we use blue. But in fact, as it gets darker, what happens is that shadows get accented. The shadow uh, of a lamp, uh, of a desk, the shadows get accented. But we've all kind of accepted in the visual language that when you see blue on stage, it means nighttime. And when it goes toward yellow, it means daytime or midday. So there are a number of things to consider. And you know, it's the rapport that really works. I've, I've gotten, I've worked with many, many directors, many choreographers. You know, it, it, it is a um, collaborative process. I've only had two incidents of problems, uh, one of which I threw a ladder, and this is in my younger days, I threw a ladder at a choreographer, you know, not the best thing in the world. And another was um, a director fired me after the show opened. And those, are, you know, that's, that's pretty damn good in a career that's gone on for decades and decades. It's pretty good to only have those two incidents. Now, I just have to say a couple things because because some of my listeners are meeting you for the first time. Uh, I mean, I assume most of them. Stephanie is like one of the most peaceful, <laughs> sweet, gentle, easygoing humans that I have ever met. Um, I, I tend to get a little intense the closer and closer it gets to production time. I have never seen Stephanie uh, really even get irritated. So I'm a little... <laughs> So you, so you know they were pushing. I, they, I they had they to be pushing, pushing it. I mean, you know, this is also mm-hmm. coming from me and my undergrad when I told my my theater teacher at the time that I had an argument with to go f himself and stormed out of the class and got kicked out of my Ooh. yeah, almost almost couldn't get a degree. Uh, <laughs> and you know, it's like <laughs> and, and and all this all this um, kind of halo effect. Like I've got one bad review, one. Oh. I mean, sometimes they might ask for something, but w- the one bad review I got was somebody that was a director with the y- Yale effect, right? They thought they knew more than I did about lighting because they went to Yale, blah, 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 blah. I told this director, it's too dark. Right. It's too dark. And I kept easing it up. Well, evidently, I left one day and he made it even darker. And boom, there I got the review. Why was the lighting so dark? This I have it. I have it right up in my collection there. Thought he knew more than I did, made it dark. That's the only really scathing review I've ever gotten. Because, you know, I know my craft, and you know, Kat, as Black women, we're always under scrutiny. You step left, step step right. You know, you got to be almost Obama clean your whole life. Right. Not to run into controversy and bad uh, reviews. There's nothing wrong with bad reviews, but Yeah. And then, Sevi, just a, a quick shout out before I move on to the next question. You said earlier, you know, some directors know 
a lot about lighting and some know a little. And, and I've mostly worked with you as an actress, but you did light uh, my direction of bathroom graffiti queen. And even though I've been in the theater forever, um, I knew very little about lighting design, except for like, I could give you the, the adjectives or the descriptions. Um, yes. Like I knew I, what I wanted the stage to feel like and what I wanted. Yes. Th them to say, right. Like what, what I wanted the lights to say or help say. That's and right. you were just, and I That's was right. like, if it had been anybody else, right. I imagine it, it would have been a much more, um, jarring experience or traumatic experience but you were so gracious uh with me and i learned and i got to learn right i got to yeah. learn so the next time uh it it'll be different so i just want to that's the point that's the point is you know teaching and learning you know and i learn i i learn a lot i have i have the fortune to have an assistant now so any of the new technology i don't understand she'll dial it up explain to me how it can work with my aesthetic you know, so I'm constantly learning as well because the technology is constantly changing. And after COVID, we've lost a lot of technicians in the Bay Area. Very hard mm -hmm. to put together a good lighting crew. Very, very hard. People left. They went to another profession. It's, it's, it's a little rough out here right now. Well, along those lines, I'm wondering, how do you, do you, uh, I imagine the answer is yes, uh, use you know, where you've gotten to be able to get, you know, your achievements, your um, stellar reputation. I mean, I know because I, I, there's multiple times I've been in a room and folks are trying to figure out the crew and your name comes up a lot. Um, <laughs> you were you. very sought after. Um, how do you, from, from where you sit, how do you either try to intentionally inspire other women, particularly black women, women of color to get in the field or create pathways for them to get into the field? Mm, great question. Well, um, as you know, I worked with Afro Urban Society two years ago, and they had a lighting design class for, um, for women, uh, for uh, trans women, for all women. And um, that was a great opportunity. But you know, there's a phenomenon going on right now. And I've talked with my younger friends about this, where the younger generation, people are not specializing. Unless they go to college and get their training through college, they don't specialize. So somebody can say, I do sound design and lighting design. I do directing and lighting design. So, you know, I've yet, and the pool of black people, as you know, is diminishing in the Bay Area. So I've not run into anybody yet who has a pressing desire to learn lighting design for the stage and film. Um, and when I do, then I'll have two assistants. My assistant currently is white, but the pool is small. The pool is small and this generation are not specializing because they have to make a living. So you have to do 16 different things. I mean, I came along, I could do lighting and keep up my bills. You know, I had to run around and do every gig that came my way, but I had a specialty. And I do have an old timey view, which I think is accurate. You know, it's very hard to do two and three things technically in the theater. Well, yeah, very hard. Yeah, though, I, I have in my older years lamented a bit that I didn't pay more attention to my practicums. You know, I just wanted to act, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then um, my 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 dad was the first black stagehand in Las Vegas. Oh, and so, yeah, and was part of IATSE, right? Yep. And um, 
International Association of States Technician and Engineers, the good old boy club. And so a guy that he was in the, you know, worked with when they were younger now ran the tech shop where I went to college. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to get anybody in trouble here. Anyway, <laughs> so he just let me basically usher for like three out of my four years. Mm. Um, but I've lamented that as I've gotten older because, you know, just trying to make your living as a stage actress right, is very, very difficult, right? Because even if you're working all the time, like the theater just does not pay. It just doesn't pay. Um, and I thought, you know, gosh, I wish I had paid attention. Like, like I wish mm. I'd spent more time, you know, in lighting or I wish I'd spent more time in set design, right? Like, because at least that way, you know, I would have been able to keep my my feet, you know, more more in it. So at least in terms of performers, I encourage young people. I'm like, yes, great act, lovely. And when you can't get no work, <laughs> you better learn. You better learn something. You better learn something else. If this is really where you want to spend your life. No, I think I think that's right. I think I I, I think that's right. I think that's great. My card is I, I Yahtzee, a local, uh, sixteen out of San Francisco, and some people enabled me to do that. So yeah, I, I think I think that's true. And there's a whole new generation on Facebook. There's there's a group called Black Theater Designers. Mm. And there's a bunch of women in there. Not they don't, none of them live in the Bay Area, unfortunately, because you know I'd love to pass the work on because I'm turning down work very, very often. Yeah. Um, but there's another generation coming and most of them have gotten their training in college. Yeah. And I wish there was another route for people for whom college is not the way. Right. Um, but that seems to be what they're doing, you know, and how they're doing it. Yeah. So, I mean, we have just a few minutes left uh, together, um, but you uh, define yourself as a mixed media artist and you've done some amazing things there. You are also apparently a writer. And you talked about them acting classes. (laughs) And so one of the things that I discovered about you that I did not know is that you have a solo piece (laughs) uh, called Every 21 Days, Cancer, Yoga, and Me. And I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about the piece and then if you could uh, launch yourself into reading an excerpt from it for us. Sure. Absolutely. So in 2013, I was at the end of getting my doctorate um, about to defend my dissertation, and um, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, which the statistics on that are tremendously heartbreaking. Uh, Women don't find out about it until it's stage three and often stage four, which means very little can be done. And all praises to the ancestors. Uh, Mine was discovered at stage one. So I went on and I put off the surgery until I defended my dissertation so that if I didn't make it through the surgery, they could put Dr. Stephanie Ann Johnson on my tombstone. And I put that into, I put that into my plan. I was like, yeah, I'm getting my, I'm getting this dissertation done. I'm getting my doctorate. And I did. And I did. So here's uh, just a few minutes of the play. Every 21 days, cancer, yoga, and me. The surgeon said, you have a type of ovarian cancer that is low risk and curable. The survivability for this stage is 90%. I responded, first you were 80% certain there was no cancer. 
Now we're looking at 90% survivability. At least the odds are going up. In the office with me was my partner of 20 years and my new friend, Laura, who was both a doctor and a longtime cancer survivor. Laura reads the pathology report. My partner takes notes and I space out and pretend I'm somewhere in Paris. The doctor says, according to some studies, you have the choice of doing three or six chemo treatments. I tend to be cautious. And so I would recommend doing the full six. I'm still in Paris. Encore du vin, more wine, more steak, more frites, beat, beat. The surgeon says, you will need to have three or six chemo treatments, one every 21 days, just to be certain there is no cancer remaining. I'd like to sign you up for the chemo class. Every 21 days, three or six treatments, that's four months. I thought I was going back to teaching next month. Chemo class, oh yeah, having a full hysterectomy is a step, not the end of this journey. 21 days, what an interesting number. It has been said that it takes 21 days to develop new habits and have them stick. Gandhi fasted for 21 days when he was in his 70s. My acupuncturist cheerfully announced, you will have all new cells every three weeks. Deepak Chopra and Oprah have several 21-day meditation challenges. One chemo session every 21 days and one meditation every night. I go to a sister-to-sister Cancer Support Group. This is the Women's Cancer Resource Center. I look across the room as one woman introduced herself. All of a sudden, I was transported back five years, maybe longer. I was in this very room introducing myself. My name is Stephanie. I don't have cancer, but I came here tonight to support my friend Vivian. It was as clear as day cancer-free and emotionally connected to my best friend, I had attended this meeting of African-American women before. The deja vu made me want to weep. For Vivian, who died of cancer, for myself, for everyone who had ever sat in that room, frightened but supported and comforted by the love and sisterhood, I had returned. I looked into the mirror and I see a different face than the one I had seen six months ago. Odd. No eyebrows, no eyelashes, no hair. Usually curled up in a smile, the corners of my eyes are now arched downward in sorrow. My eyes have a deep weariness and sadness I had never seen before. But it is oddly familiar. Mommy, I see your face and this exact same look in your eyes. It's winter, it's Sunday, and you are playing Mahalia Jackson records. The journey through cancer and back to life has been filled with lessons. I learned that judgment is not always useful. When I started to talk to close friends, 
They shared how their mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, twins, cousins, uncles, and friends had survived both cancer and its treatments. I found out that cancer is far more common than I knew, and that once I opened up, many, many people were willing to talk about their experiences. I have a prayer. I am a faith-filled servant of God, the ancestors, and all that is divine. Everything I need is provided at all times. May the ancestors find this humble work worthy of all that they have given me. Namaste. Hey, that was beautiful. Um, Stephanie Ann Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kat. Thank you so much. And let's get on to our next project together. I'm waiting. It's, uh, I think it's, it's coming. Uh, we about to start rehearsals for Joe Turner's Come and Gone. So all right now. I imagine you're going to be getting a call from the queen herself soon. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, all right, you are listening to Lawn Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. And this week's feature is mixed media artist and lighting designer extraordinaire and one woman show creator and performer, Stephanie Ann Johnson. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance and Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>